This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. I'm going to start us off by reading a poem from this book. And the title of the poem is, What Am I Dying For? What am I dying for? Living comes with such ease. What am I dying for? Let it go, let it go. Life to the dead, let it go. I believed in someone and something I needed more. They brought me fragments of life, but what am I dying for? If it can't twist a soul, turn blood ice-like cold, shatter the paradigm's mold, is it worth living for? To put it in perspective, stages, to put it in perspective, stages earn you more than deserved wages, is it worth living for? Unless it doesn't quite make sense and go beyond intelligence, it won't be to die for. But when a cross is broken, arms stretched out as a token toward a day in Eden long before, yes, that offers something to die for. I want us to read from the um, Matthew chapter 16 that I opened up with today, but we're going to back up to some previous verses. And this is going to be maybe different than the way you've heard these words talked about in the past um, because it's these are familiar words and generally when you hear the most common and familiar stories and passages from scripture preached and elaborated on and taught about you're going to hear relatively the same messages coming out of it and that's fine they're they're important messages they are true messages they're powerful messages do we have it Here we go. Um, But often with the Word of God, and some of you will definitely be able to say yes to this right away because you've experienced it, you will go to some of these familiar spots and all of a sudden you see something you hadn't seen in the past. You hear something out of it that is not familiar. It's different, and you learn a different lesson. You You learn a new lesson out of it. So just open yourself up for that today. I read the poem, which asked the question, is it worth dying for? What are we dying for? How many people in the room are dying? No? I thought we were all dying, right? Yeah, we're dying. So the question is not, are we dying? The question is, what are we dying for? You can say, what are we living for? which really amounts to the same thing, or you can ask the question, what are we dying for? What are you willing to die for? As a husband and a father, you know, my first inclination is to say, well, I would die for my wife and I would die for my children. And in a natural sense, that's where I would come from on that. But is there anything else? Is there anything else I would be willing to die for? I have to ask that question. I have to evaluate it. I have to answer it honestly. And this little uh, narrative here and this conversation that Jesus has back and forth with some of his followers can help us to answer that question. What are we dying for? What are we willing to die for? So before we start reading from verse 13, 
you need a little bit of a backdrop, which is that Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles. He's been teaching, he's been calling, he's been challenging, but he's also been working miracles. He's doing the God work that he's here to do. We talked last week about how he came to do work that nobody else could do. He's busy doing that work. We talked about how he waited until he was 30 years old to start doing that work, how he had the most important assignment in history that any person has ever been given, yet he waited 30 years to start. He took the first 40 days off once he started his new job. He took the first 40 days off. He took a sabbatical. He went to the wilderness, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he was tempted by the devil, and then he came back, and he launched into his public ministry with teaching, with preaching, with calling, and with working miracles, profound God miracles, such as healing the sick, uh, calming violent storms of nature, and even raising the dead. He's been busy doing all of these things. Right before these words from verse 13 start, he has delivered a girl who was possessed with demons, and he has fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and a couple of fish. All right, so these are the things he's doing. There's another thing that's going on at the same time. And that is he's starting to experience pretty intense resistance from the religious establishment. So he's getting pushback from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these different religious groups, from the teachers of the law, from very important, powerful, influential religious people. They're starting to worry about him. They're starting to express that worry. They're starting to become angry, and they're really expressing their opposition to this man and what he's saying and what he's doing. So that's the backdrop. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all of that, and don't ever think that any of this is coincidental. And don't ever think that these things are not connected. You cannot separate what we're about to hear from what has just happened previously. Okay, this is all by design. You see, there's a reason why the Holy Bible, by light years, is the biggest selling piece of literature ever in the history of mankind. And some would say, well, that's because it's the Word of God. But guess what? Not everybody believes it's the Word of God. Right? So it can't be just that. Because there are a lot of people who have purchased and own a Holy Bible who don't really believe in it and who, who don't really live by it. One of the other reasons why it is so popular is because it is so well-written. It is so well-structured. Everything connects with everything else. You can take a portion of Scripture out of the book of Hebrews and you can take it back and you can connect it with something out of the book of Isaiah. And so these are 66 individual books, but they are all connected together as part of one bigger story. And so when Matthew wrote this gospel, he did so under the inspiration, 
and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't, it didn't happen just because Matthew was an excellent writer or an excellent storyteller or an excellent journaler. It happened because the Holy Spirit was leading him through the process of putting it down in a way that, that uh, made sense in terms of the sequence of things. So out of what's going on that I just described, Jesus decides that it's time to open up a monumental, now listen to me, I cannot put into words, I don't have the words to describe how important this is, a monumentally important conversation with his followers. It's, it's important because of what they were going to face in the days to come. It was important because of what Jesus was facing in the immediate days following when he says this. But it goes way past that. What are we doing right here, right now in Thomaston, Georgia on the 4th of September 2022? We're talking about it, right? Why? Because it's important to us at levels that our minds can't even get around. All we can do is listen, absorb, try to filter it through the Spirit and, and take it as truth and let it, and let it impact us one little bitty bit at a time. Because it's too big for us to grab all in one fell swoop. Okay, So he decides it's time to have this huge conversation. And it says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. Again, this is not a group of guys walking down the road, shooting the bull about whatever. Okay? Just thinking of something to talk about. Small talk, chit-chat. No. This is planned. This is the right time. This is the right place. These are the right people. This is part of the ordination of God's assignment on him while he was here on earth. It's big. He asked his disciples, so who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he asked them that initial question for a reason. He want, it's not because he doesn't know. It's because he wants to see what their perceptions are of what's going on. He wants to see where they are in their thinking after they have now spent some time with him. After they've heard his words, after they've witnessed his works. What's in their heads? Who are they listening to? How is what they're hearing impacting them? And they answer him, well, they're out there talking. They're out there saying, you could be Elijah. You could be John the Baptist. You could be Jeremiah. You could be one of the other prophets. So you are an important person. It's still kind of up in the air and fuzzy about exactly who you might be the reincarnation of. But we know you're important. Which leads him to the next question. Okay, so what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers and says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Why 
is that so powerful that I felt it in my chest when I said it. How many of you have heard that before? You, you know about this exchange. You know it's important. You know there's big significance to it because it's talked about so much, because it's pointed to, because it has become so familiar in the church world. But we ought to be hit in the chest when we hear that, and here's why. Because this is the beginning of a sequence here, a conversation back and forth about purpose. And there's no word that you can name for us as human beings in relationship with our Creator to deal with than the word purpose. Because if you're here right now, if you're listening to my words, if you entered these doors this morning, there has to be some sense in you that there is a purpose for your life. If not, why come? If not, why try to dig into the things of God? If not, why pay attention at all? You know, if I didn't think there was a purpose for me, I'd be doing something else. You know, my brother, when we were teenagers, we, we were bad so often we couldn't live up to the standard of holiness that was presented to us that he started saying this thing to, to me that he would say periodically. He'd say, well, little brother, we're going to hell anyway. We may as well enjoy the journey. Well, if I didn't believe there was purpose for me, I would be out there enjoying the journey, getting everything I could get out of this life because this life would be all there is to it, Right? But I believe there's purpose, and that's why this strikes home. It speaks to purpose. It speaks to the purpose of Jesus being on this earth as a man. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is your purpose. I see it in you, Peter says. And what is Jesus' response? His response is really positive, uplifting, exciting. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This is not a natural thing. This is not a man thing, but it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. This, this thing, purpose, has to be revealed by the Father. It's a spiritual issue. You say, well, I, I don't know what my purpose is. That's because you're not living in close enough relationship to the Father. Hey, I don't know what else to tell you. If you came in here looking for something other than the truth, you're in the wrong spot. If you either don't know your purpose or you're not growing in your understanding of your purpose, then you're not living in close enough relationship to God because He has a purpose for you. And if you are living in close relationship with Him and if you are living your life in obedience to His words without a selfish agenda, then He will absolutely, 100% guaranteed, be revealing your purpose to you little by little as your life goes on. No question about it. And so he says, you're blessed because this was revealed by my Father. It's because you've been following me. It's because you've been listening to me. It's because you've been obeying my words. And then he flips it, and he now takes the arrows off of his own purpose 
And he points toward Peter's purpose. How cool is that? Because this is how he works. We focus on his purpose, and he turns it and shows us our purpose. And he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, you, because Peter, the Greek word for Peter is Petra, which means rock. On you, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That, Peter, is your purpose. When you talk about the characters in the New Testament, and you start to consider their importance. They're all equally important as human beings, but what about purpose? God-given assignment, God-given purpose, God-given plan. My opinion only, don't chastise me, don't report me. I don't think the Apostle Paul is the second most important character in the New Testament because we know who the first is, right? Jesus himself is the first. I think Simon Peter is the second most important character in the, in the New Testament. Because without Simon Peter, there is no New Testament church for the Apostle Paul to persecute and end up having his life flipped upside down and becoming a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter, a pastor, and the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament. If Peter's purpose is not pointed out, if Peter is not ordained and anointed to accomplish that person, that purpose, nothing else happens. And Jesus right here identifies it. You are the person on whom I will build my church, and when I build it, the gates of hell can't come against it. You have a monumental purpose and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Those are big responsibilities. And Peter is given his purpose. You know, Peter is the guy that on the day of Pentecost when the promise was fulfilled and they were sitting in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came and they were empowered and they walked out of that room. He is the guy who stood up and preached on that day, and 3,000 human beings became the, the first members, participators in the new way, the church of Jesus Christ. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now listen where, he goes, where it goes next. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised to life. What do you think happens next? The guy who has just been assigned his purpose. Big, monumental assignment. 
in the middle of a dialogue about purpose. The guy who has just said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and has then received his assignment in the kingdom of God, when he starts to hear how this purpose of Jesus Christ is going to play out, because what's he expecting? See, this illustrates the constant war between the natural and the spiritual. It's going on in your head and in your heart all the time. How many of you this past week, you'd say there's been a portion of the past week that I have operated completely out of the natural? I've been a human being who has said things and done things that were just my own natural way of doing it. And then hopefully some of us could say there have been times in this past week where I have operated totally and completely inside my spirit man in obedience to the words of God. I'm afraid that the balance, the, the scales are going to tip more often to the natural. But hopefully we understand that we are in a growth process. We're in a process of maturing. And we become more and more like Christ, as the Scripture says, day by day. But there is this constant war, this constant tug of war between the natural and the spiritual. And so Peter still, even though he's heard from Christ, even though he's received his assignment, he's dealing with the natural. And Jesus says to him, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be hauled off to trial. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be killed. I will rise again, but I'm going to be killed. The natural man takes over, and Peter pulls him aside and says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And the same Jesus who got excited when Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same Jesus that got excited when Peter said that and affirmed him and was very positive and, and gave him his purpose now says, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> I, I don't know about y'all. I just... The back and forth on this thing, between the natural and the spiritual, between the man and the God that are present in the room, it, it just illustrates my life more beautifully than anywhere else I can look. How that there are always other voices trying to give me other messages. There are always other philosophies and ideas and opinions being presented. And I'm always tempted to go down this road or that road or the other road. And at the same time, the Lord the Christ is always standing there, a steady company, whispering the same words, and His words always amount to the absolute truth. And once in a while, I stop and just pay attention only to Him. When the reality is, is that I ought to be stopping on a really, really regular basis and paying attention only to Him. And not giving my ear and my attention to these other places 
and these other sources and these other people. Peter says, never, it's, it's not going to happen to you. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's it. That's the contrast. We have our spirit man. We have our natural man. We have the spirit. We have the flesh. You read all through the writings of the Apostle Paul, you see this contrast between the spirit and the flesh. Life in the spirit, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What are the characteristics? What are the attributes? Life in the flesh, what does it look like, sound like? What are the characteristics? What are the attributes? And then if we take that and we, we look in the mirror and we look at those two lists and we evaluate how many of these attributes and characteristics apply to me and how many of these attributes and characteristics apply to me, and we find out exactly where we're living. And wherever we land, wherever we know that we're living, after we do that self-evaluation, is going gonna, is gonna to make us aware of how much time we're spending looking at and listening to the true source as opposed to filling ourselves up with all sorts of other sources. You are... Con you, you do not have in mind the concerns of God. i got to ask you that question. Not, not a show of hands. I don't want anybody to have to lie or to be embarrassed. To what extent do we really have in mind the concerns of God? To what extent is our brain occupied with the concerns of God? What percentage of time do we give in our thought life to who God is? What is God saying and what is God doing? What, what does the chart look like when we do, if we did a pie chart and there's only two pieces to the pie? One is, and the pie is our life, one is the piece that represents the amount of time and attention, effort, energy, time, talent, treasure that we give to the concerns of God. And the other piece is the amount of all of that that we give to the concerns of man. Oh, I'm afraid that... I have a little, you know, when Tracy asks for a piece of pie, she usually says, I just want a little sliver. I'm afraid that's what my piece of pie would look like sometimes when it comes to the concerns of God. You know, hopefully not all the time, but sometimes I'm guilty. And, and he rebukes Peter for having more of the concerns of man in him than the concerns of God. But we're still on the subject of purpose. And now Jesus says something else. This whole business is just chock full. I don't have a single note. I don't have an outline. I don't have nothing. I decided just to walk through this and deal with these things line by line because there is so much here. He says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me.
You've heard that one before too, right? What's your understanding of it? I've heard it preached a few different ways. You know, the most common is going to be, well, if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to prioritize his word, his instructions in your life. You're going to have to prioritize prayer. You're going to have to give up things of the world, right? And what is this business of um, denying yourself and taking up your cross? What does that mean? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we need to prepare ourselves to go and be nailed to a cross and crucified because that only had to happen once. So that's not what it's talking about. Does it mean that we should be willing or, or are willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel if it comes to that? Yes, I believe it includes that. Does it, does it mean that we sacrifice uh, getting rich or, or focusing on materialism or fame and fortune, all that kind of stuff? Uh, for the sake of following Jesus Christ. Yes, I think it can mean some of that, but I think it means a whole lot more than that. What does it mean to take up our cross? It's all about your own purpose. Listen, all of this is connected, like I said before. What is your cross? Your cross is your assignment. Your cross is whatever God has placed you on planet Earth at this point in history to do, to be. What's the influence He's put you here to have? That is your cross. He comes right off of telling them, I'm going to the cross. That's my assignment. That's why my Father sent me here. I'm going before the judges. That's my assignment. That's my purpose. I'm going to be falsely convicted. That's my assignment. I'm going to be humiliated and tortured and brutalized and made fun of in horrific ways. I'm going to be subjected to unbelievable pain and torment. That's my assignment. It's my purpose. I'm going to have to carry my own literal cross up a hill and be nailed to it and hang there and die. That's my assignment. That's my purpose. That's my cross. And now he says, whoever wants to follow me must deny or lay down their own agenda. Lay down their own plan for their life. Forget about whatever the pathway is you think is right for you. And take up your cross, the assignment that has been given to you. And follow me through your life, embedded in that assignment. You know, I'm reading this book by um, uh, James Mattis, who was the Secretary of Defense, who before that was megastar general, whatever, whatever it was, <laughs> in the Marine Corps. Um, gave his entire life, was never married until he retired to the Marine Corps. He's just a total military guy, military mind. And, and he talks about all these military operations. And one thing that strikes me about all of that is how in the military you are given an assignment and you had better 
take your assignment seriously. And you'd better stick to your assignment and stay in your lane because your lane is aligned with other lanes on either side. And if you get out of your lane, you're going to mess up everything. So being committed to the assignment in the Marine Corps is paramount. It's success or failure. It's literally life or death. And Jesus says, you have an assignment. You have an individual, personal assignment. You say, well, Jeff, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't even know if I believe it. I don't feel that. I don't sense it. I, I'm just kind of living my life, especially you young people. I mean, I'm not saying you ought to know 100% of what your assignment is today. But I am saying that you should be in the process of figuring out what it is. And the way you do that is you listen to his words. You lay down your own agenda, your own priorities, your own wishes and wants. And you say, God, I'm committed to whatever my cross is, whatever that assignment is you have given to me. Take up your assignment and follow me throughout your life. Because Jesus' assignment was hard. But it ended up in new life. If we follow him, we may experience some challenging situations, but we're not going to experience death on a cross because he did that for us. That's not necessary. Might we be martyred at some point for the sake of the gospel? I can't say 100% no. I don't know. If we live our lives daily in a pattern that is committed to his assignment for us, we'll be ready for that. We'll be able to handle that. But this is the process to purpose. Verse 25 says, For whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Sounds like one of the greatest paradoxes ever. Right? If you want to save your life, you have to lose your life. If you want to save the life he has for you, you have to lose the life you have for yourself. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let me tell you what your greatest goal in life should be. The number one goal in everybody's life in this room should be this. You listening? The salvation of your soul. That should be number one on the top of all lists for your life. My number one goal is the salvation of my soul. And Jesus gives a beautiful word picture here through about 15, 16 verses of Scripture on how to make sure your soul is saved. See, I grew up thinking that if I went to church, prayed, read my Bible, paid my tithes, and supported missions work, that's on the do list, 
and on the don't do list, did not cuss, steal, cheat, kill anybody, commit adultery, or any of those bad, drink, smoke, or play poker, believe it or not. If I did the do list and the don't do list just right, my soul would be saved. That was my understanding. Uh, you know, unfortunately, that leaves out grace and mercy and lots of other cool things. But that was my perception. I don't know that the people who taught me those things intentionally taught me those things or whether it's just my brain perceiving it that way. But it's just not what Jesus says. He says you can gain the life that he has for you if you'll simply be willing to lay down the life that you have in mind for yourself and ask him to give you his life instead. Doesn't that sound a lot cooler? <laughs> a lot simpler? A lot more achievable. Anybody else besides me ever had a problem with keeping the do list and the don't do list? That's why my brother used to say, we're going to hell anyway, let's enjoy the journey, is because we couldn't keep the list. We just couldn't keep the list. You know, I've told you all the story about the, the uh, preacher who had one eye that went that way and one eye that went that way, and he preached hellfire and condemnation and told a story one night in church about how he had preached a couple weeks earlier, and there was a young man in the back um, that he knew he was talking to, and he said, this is your last chance. If you don't come down to this altar tonight and give your heart to the Lord, you're going to go out into eternity, quote, lost and undone without God. That's what they used to say, right? And the young man refused to come down, went out, was walking home that night, got hit by a truck and killed. All right? So the whole time he's saying that, Bruce and I are sitting on the back row, and he's staring right at us, telling that story like it scared us to death. So when he gave the altar call, we came running down front, crying, repenting, asking God to keep us away from all the dump trucks. We'll never do anything bad again. Just don't let a truck run over us. So we're talking at the house later that night. And he says, boys, I'm proud of y'all for coming down and praying tonight. I was surprised. I didn't expect that out of the pastor's kids. And Bruce said, well, well, he didn't feel like we had any choice. You were staring right at us when you were telling that story. He said, boys, I didn't look at y'all one time. I was looking at a girl on the other side of the church. He tricked us with that cockeyed thing going on. So we, I call that cockeyed salvation, and it didn't stick. It's one of those times when Bruce said, hey, you know, if it wasn't intended for us, it surely ain't going to stick, so let's just enjoy the journey. <laughs> you know? Jesus says, here's how it works. You be willing to trade off your ideas of what would be a good life for you for my idea for what would be a good life for you. And you just stay in close communion with me. You follow me, he says, follow me. Stay in my shadow, right? The shadow of the Almighty, stay there. Follow me. With that commitment alive and well every day that you want my life for you. And your soul will be saved. What if you gain the whole world 
your plan is accomplished, you get everything you want, you know what's coming one day? You're going to die. Then what? Then what? You had millions of dollars, you had a big house, you had beautiful cars, you dated and married the right person, the wrong person, whatever, whatever person you wanted. But you died, and you never knew what his purpose was for you. No greater, greater tragedy that we could name. He said, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Huge phrase right there, according to what they have done. He has just given the mandate, the instruction. Here's how to live life in your purpose. So, when the Son of Man, when you stand before Him in judgment, He's going to judge you based on whether you responded to what He said. Whether or not you were willing to make a trade-off His life instead of your life. And He says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. One of the most confusing verses in the Bible that people have tried to figure out forever because... Reality is, is that Jesus has not returned yet, yet all of those guys he was talking to are dead. So what, what, what is, what's the reality of it? What does it really mean? Because you either have to believe that everything just went off the rails and none of it's valid because he just said... Some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Or it has to mean something other than Him returning before they die because they're dead and He hasn't returned. Here's my discernment by the Spirit. Jesus is talking to people who have been given a commission who have been instructed on purpose. And the Son of Man, when He goes to the cross, He's coming in His kingdom. When He rises from the dead, He is coming in His kingdom. His kingdom is arriving. You follow me? His kingdom was arriving then. His kingdom was showing up. His kingdom had been showing up since He was born in a stable. The reality of God with us was right there with them. Some of you, not all of you, because Judas was going to die before he rose from the dead. Some of you will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He, he puts an exclamation point on the whole discussion. The discussion about purpose. The discussion about obedience. The discussion about how to make sure you secure the salvation of your soul by saying, look, I'm here. My kingdom has come. My kingdom is coming. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. We're not going away anymore. We have arrived one preacher down in Florida 
there's this kingdom now movement has that has some stuff around it that not everybody has agreed with but he said i've been asked do you believe in kingdom now he said my answer is well if not now when jesus came to earth he presented his kingdom he accomplished his mission he went back to the father he sent the promised holy spirit his kingdom is here we're waiting on heaven but we're not waiting on his kingdom if you're waiting on his kingdom, you're just living out in, in the cold when you've been given an invitation to come on in and live in his kingdom. It's here. Right? So, from a back and forth between him and Peter and his followers to his pronouncement of his kingdom, we're given a very clear picture of what's required. I don't, you know, I hate playing games when it comes to God, church, the Word. I, I'm not here to try to give you some sort of a cool alternative to what you've ever heard. I'm just here to dig into the truth and see what He wants to tell us. He used this phrase earlier and, and when I read it about giving Peter the keys to the kingdom. He said, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, I don't know about you. You can go away from here with whatever desire and opinion that you want. Me, I want to be a guy in whose hand he places the keys to the kingdom. I want to be told about the mysteries of God. I want to walk in Revelation not saying this to say anything for myself whatsoever this is all about what he does with an obedient servant but when i stand up here and talk to you on sundays and say what i have to say it's because i'm living in revelation i i tell you that to tell you that that can happen for anybody anybody who lives in that close relationship, listens and watches for the words and the works of God and commits themselves to obedience to those works and words, will live in perpetual revelation. What's revelation? That means he's showing you stuff he's not showing anybody else. He's teaching, look, this, this stuff I've just read to you and talked about this morning, I didn't go read a book, I haven't watched a video, I haven't listened to a podcast, nothing. This is me sitting with these words, navigating my way through, and watching him open up revelation in front of me. Keys to the kingdom, there is no more satisfying place to live. <laughs> no more satisfying experience to have than to know that God is talking to you and that God is showing you pictures that he's not showing anybody else. Man, Father, thank you that you have keys you want to give us and that you want to give them to us. And thank you for people in this room who want to receive them. Thank you for instructions, very clear and simple instructions on how to find our purpose, how to live in revelation, how to experience the true salvation of our souls. 
Thank you for that. I receive it today. I pray others in the room receive it. And that it will make a, a big difference in how we're living out our lives day by day. I pray blessings of peace over everybody as we go. Blessings of power. Blessings of provision and protection. And that as we let our lights shine among men, that, that those men will see those good works and will glorify you because you're the author of everything good. In your name I pray. Amen.